Hey everyone, Jody Avergan here, podcast host and producer at 538. We thought we'd bring you a little bit of bonus audio. Last week, three members of our politics team, Nate Silver, Harry Enton, and Micah Cohen, did a panel discussion as part of Advertising Week. It was for a fairly small audience, but I kept seeing tweets from the event and got a sense that it was a really lively and substantive talk about kind of all the issues that are going on in the election so far. So we tracked down the audio. It's not the best quality, fair warning. But here it is for all to listen to. By the way, if you found this through the website, make sure you subscribe to our podcast, What's the Point? About how data affects our lives. It's hosted by me. You can find it on iTunes. And if you're listening in the What's the Point feed, a brand new episode is on the way this Thursday. And for all of you, we'll be launching a proper politics podcast channel with lots of new shows and content running through Election Day 2016 very soon. So stay tuned. Okay, here's the conversation between Nate, Harry, and Micah. It starts with Micah's question. All right, so we'll talk a little bit about the election, the Democratic and Republican primaries, and then maybe a little bit about what these guys think might happen in the general election. Let's start with the Democratic primary first. Hillary Clinton has seemed like she's in a little bit of trouble lately with this email scandal. How seriously is the is the danger to her, do you guys think? Would you like to take it or would you like me to take it? You can go first, and then I'll pivot off you, Harry. <laughs> I, I got accused of having a pro-Hillary Clinton bias. I'm called a corporate hack every day by Bernie Sanders fans on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I, I wish the money was there. It's not. But I, the reason simply is, is because I believe Hillary Clinton is going to win this nomination. The, the emails certainly have, in my opinion, hurt her standing somewhat among the general public. Among Democrats, it's been significantly less. She still leads in the national polls. She still leads in Iowa. She does not lead New Hampshire, though, as someone who went to college up in New Hampshire. I know that Bernie Sanders was from right next door. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, Hillary Clinton has the party behind her. What academia teaches us is that the party, quote-unquote, decides. That is that if you have the party infrastructure, congressmen, governors, state party chairman, really behind a particular candidate, that candidate is probably going to win a presidential nomination. It's been that way uh, since the 1980s. And Clinton right now has pretty much all the endorsements. Bernie Sanders doesn't have a single endorsement from any congressman or any governor. Hillary Clinton has 95% of the endorsements given out so far, and she has over 55% of the possible endorsements. That's incredible. Harry, but I read all the time about Bernie Sanders attracting these huge, enthusiastic crowds. Hillary Clinton doesn't seem to have that much passion behind her. She's you know, the front runner, I think you would say, but it's kind of a not very happy front runner. What about these huge crowds? What about all this? Ask Mitt Romney about those huge crowds that he got in Pennsylvania and then lost the state by 5.38 points or whatever it was. I'm sorry if my decimal point's a little off there. I don't have it directly (laughs) in front of me. Wait up the stereotype here. Well, what else would I be doing? I live live myself. I don't want to be anybody else. I can't possibly be you. Um, So... I, I, crowds are nice. Those are great. I mean, but... What about the enthusiasm? That, I, that means nothing? I, I, what is this enthusiasm? I mean, I believe Hillary Clinton voters, for the most part, are, are people who work for a living and don't have time to go out to these rallies. And more than that... <laughs> no, it's... That, I mean, look, Bernie Sanders uh, fans are actually very rich. Yes. On average, whereas Donald Trump supporters are actually quite poor. So That's you right. would think it would be the opposite, but... Politics is a weird thing in America today. I mean, I, look, what Harry says 
is important, that the entire party establishment has kind of made an all-in bet on Clinton, and to pull back their chips from the table now would be very difficult, especially given the dynamics of, you know, the establishment not going to back a 74-year-old self-described socialist like Bernie Sanders. They could back Joe Biden, who of course is the vice president, but to pull back all those chips off the table at the last minute and to say this woman who's been waiting for eight years to become the next nominee, now at the last minute we're going to swoop in and have an old white guy come in and take her place, that's not going to go over all that well with the Democratic base, and that will trigger more enthusiasm for Clinton. Right now you have kind of speculation about Biden. One reason why Clinton's numbers are still declining is that although Bernie Sanders seems to have stalled out, I'm not sure if it's stalled to zero, but his growth isn't much anymore. But Joe Biden now is mentioned in most polls, getting 8% of the vote, he's getting 20%, 22%. That's definitely coming from Clinton and not from Biden. But the problem is in comparing Clinton, who's been running for president for months now, to Biden, it's like comparing a car with 20,000 miles on it that was just through a road race to something with a spotlight on it on the showroom floor, right? That car with the spotlight's gonna look a lot better because it hasn't actually driven any miles yet. It might not be a better car. In fact, if you go over the course of history, Clinton was a much better candidate in 2008. They both ran for president. Clinton did very well. She didn't win. She came as close to winning as you can, pretty much, without winning. Um, Biden finished in fifth place in, in Iowa. So, you know, the email scandals, it gives negative attention to Clinton. It's kind of part of a cycle of stories where you get a story about email and a story about polls and a story about Biden, and it kind of keeps going in this carousel. There's not a lot of actual news in the campaign. There are no debates yet. The Benghazi hearings are our next month, I think. But in the absence of anything else, you kind of have this perpetual cycle of negative stories for Clinton. Is Biden going to get in the race? I think... I want a yes or no answer to that question. If I had to bet at even odds? I mean, we're probabilistic at 538, right? At even odds, I would say no. Because I think at the end of the day, he's a party guy. Um, not like a party, like, oh, let's have fun guy. He's that too, though. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's a Democratic Party guy, though. Yes. They can have parties at the Democratic Party. But at the end of the day, he's probably going to do what's in the best interest of Democrats. And for, for Biden to go in is basically a no-confidence vote in Clinton. And that could have all types of negative consequences. Maybe Biden could win. He is the vice president. It's obviously not out of the question. But you could also have Clinton be weakened, and you have this cycle of negative attention continue for months and months. Or you could even have, although it's unlikely, that's the case where Bernie Sanders could win too. He's probably not going to win a majority of the Democratic vote, except in Vermont. But he could get 35% or 40%, and if the other 60% is split about evenly, while meanwhile he is good with getting delegates and working the ground game and stuff like that, it's a long shot, but that would be his best case scenario, I would think. Look, Joe Biden was a U.S. Senator from Delaware from 1973 through early part of 2009. Bernie Sanders is just now registering as a Democrat for the New Hampshire primary. These are two very, very different people. Joe Biden is somebody who does not want to hurt the Democratic Party. He is all about the Democratic Party. And if there's any sense that if he gets in, he helps, then he'll jump in. But for right now, it seems, at least to me, and I believe to you as well, Nate, that him getting in actually hurts, hurts the chance probably in the general election. There's no reason for Biden to get in. It doesn't help anybody. And one thing I just want to circle back to, Hillary Clinton is in much stronger shape right now in the endorsement primary than she was at this point in 2000. An eight cycle, which I think is so important to know because everyone says, oh, she fell apart last time, so why won't she fall apart this time? She's in much better shape, and I believe she's actually a better candidate strengthened by um, 
going through everything that you went through in the 2008 yeah, if you, campaign. If you had an Obama-type figure, it might be different, right? Maybe Elizabeth Warren is the one politician who has some star power. But the point is, this, it's kind of too late to have this discussion. We all remember what happened to Rick Perry when he entered the race late four years ago. And he entered in July, August, uh, August July, yeah. not in what would now, at the earliest, presumably be mid-October for Biden, uh, right? Well, well, Even Scott Walker, who had been kind of running behind the scenes for months and months, much more than Biden has been, entered in July. Well, he had the shortest tenure as an official candidate of anyone in history. So, you know, Biden's going to be remembered, I think, somewhat fondly as a slightly goofy vice president, uh, but for a Democratic administration that got a lot of Democratic priorities done. You know, if he runs against Clinton and divides the party, number one, or number two, peters out, right? Um, he has no campaign operation. He finishes with 10% of the vote in Iowa, and it's all a bit embarrassing. That's what he'll be remembered for. People are going to remember Mitt Romney not for his uh, accomplishments at Bain Capital or for being an effective governor of Massachusetts or for rescuing the Olympics, but for being a twice-failed presidential candidate. Who put a dog on a roof. Who put a dog on a roof. So let's jump uh, to the Republicans. You mentioned Scott Walker, who, who exited the race recently, and my beloved Rick Perry, who exited the race before him. But we still have 15 candidates, one of whom sucks up most of the oxygen in terms of media coverage. Which, which one? Well, Jim Gilmore. Jim Gilmore. The, <laughs> uh, uh, no, so Donald Trump, there's been a lot written about him and he's still leading the polls. How seriously should we kind of take Trump's bid for the White House? So a fun exercise is to go back and look at the polls as they were four years ago, eight years ago, and so forth. So four years ago, we were in the midst of the Rick Perry surge, actually, on the Republican side. Eight years ago, you had Clinton leading Obama by a lot. You had a lot of stories being written in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, all great papers, but about how Obama's campaign was in disarray. It hadn't really come to fruition. Meanwhile, you had a Fred Thompson surge on the Republican side. Go back four years earlier in the midst of, of the Howard Dean surge on the Democratic side. So basically no one since 2000 that was leading in the polls at this point in the election actually wound up winning the election. Um, you'd still probably rather be ahead than behind, but Trump is someone who would be unlike any nominee we've seen in the past. There have sometimes been extremely liberal or conservative nominees. McGovern isn't the worst analogy for Bernie Sanders, for example, or Barry Goldwater for Ted Cruz. No one who so openly defies his party and is so openly detested by the party establishment has won a nomination that's the party's to bestow, so to speak. On top of that, there is some evidence that Trump is declining a bit in the polls. Um, some. It's weird. People kind of either constantly expect Trump to totally implode and disappear all at once, or when he doesn't, they say, oh, he's got staying power forever. He's indestructible. And the truth is that's probably somewhere in between those two stories. If I had to guess, if you told me, Nate, you have to draw up the one modal, meaning most probable single scenario for Trump, it would be that he has a, a slow and somewhat bumpy, not necessarily even slow and steady, climb down from 30% to 25% where he is now, and maybe down to 15%, which is what you might get as kind of a, a factional candidate. But he'll probably have other periods where he's resurrected. I mean, we saw that with Newt Gingrich. We saw with Sarah Palin, who was a politician who in some ways, I think, paved the way for Trump, you know, in terms of someone who can be very plain spoken, but has a sense for the media dynamic and how to play to conservative voter hearts 
with that. Palin had a couple of waves of being extremely popular and then very unpopular before she kind of petered out. But anytime you're predicting something that would be kind of revolutionary in politics to happen, and, and we know that the polls in September don't mean very much, that political revolutions don't happen very often, I wouldn't say the chance is zero, but the chances of a Trump nomination are low, I think. We just spoke about the endorsement primary when it came to Hillary Clinton. When we look at Donald Trump, he has zero endorsements, zero. Look, Donald Trump is a name, and if you throw his name out right now with all the media coverage he's got, it's not really surprising that he's in the low to mid-20s in most national polls. But if you ask a follow-up question, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of such and such candidate, and then you look at Donald Trump's name recognition, and you compare where he is on his favorable rating and how well he is known to pass nominees going back to 1980, you see that he's three standard deviations below where you'd expect him to be if he were to be a future nominee. Obviously, three standard deviations below is not very good. In fact, no one has ever come close to being three standard deviations below so and that, actually winning the nomination. What that means in English is what that, that... What that means in English is that Donald Trump's <laughs> net favorability rating should be plus 50 percentage points, and it's plus 12. Not enough people that like him. That was like... Not push. enough people like, like him. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Why, why don't you, 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 y'all can... Well, wait, let me ask this. He's not, pop- so, he's not popular. the consensus of your party, unless the party convinces itself... And the party meaning both rank-and-file voters and party elites, the establishment, they usually have to agree in the end. They usually do agree. But they need to convince themselves that here's a candidate who, number one, will give us a chance to win in November, and number two, represents our values as a party. The problem with Trump is kind of uniquely he does neither. He would probably get crushed in November, I guess maybe unless he's running against Bernie Sanders, but he also isn't really a Republican. He uh, threatened to campaign as an independent. He's donated to, what is it, Pelosi. He had Clinton at his wedding. He formerly said that we should have a wealth tax and we should have single-payer health care. He used to be uh, pro-choice. All these things are, are not going to reassure Republican voters that when he gets in office, he's going to carry out the conservative agenda. Let me, let me push back on this a little bit. So, Obama gets elected in 2008. 2010, a wave of Republicans get elected, take over the House, right? 2012, Obama's reelected. 2014, Republicans take the Senate. You saw over that time the Tea Party rise. And there's a story out there that Republicans are not happy with the results. They say to themselves, look, we took the House, we took the Senate, and what have we earned for it, right? So now you look at the polls and you have Donald Trump, number one, Ben Carson, close number two, Carly Fiorina is up there. I think the the highest person in the polls right now who has held elected office is Marco Rubio, right? And he's at eight, nine percent. In other words, the story is this time is different. Republicans are really mad. And sure, Trump isn't like any past nominee, but that's kind of the point. I mean, why isn't that a story that makes sense? Well, first of all, and then I'll let Harry go. Oh, right? Thank you so much. People always say this time is different. So we went back and we thought about what was the most boring nomination campaign in history. We just said 1996, which Bob Dole won, not a very exciting candidate on the Republican side, kind of led from, from wire to wire. How dare you impugn Bob Dole's uh, an American charisma. Hero. Bob yeah. Dole is an American hero. <laughs> but if you go back and read campaign coverage of 1996, they're making it seem like the best Super Bowl of all time, right? You know, Pat Buchanan dramatically upended expectations and, uh, you know, will Jock Kemp endorse Bob Dole or will there be tension? You know, just, we've never seen anything like this before. So the fact that people always say this time is different and then usually the boring thing happens, that's what sucks about 538, right? I feel like we wound up rooting for, like, the boring 
predictable outcome a lot of the time. Whereas I actually think the world's a fairly unpredictable place, but there are hang-ups in political journalism where you know, something that's 90% likely to occur, people say, oh, it's too close to call, they don't want to be wrong, they want to create more suspense. Um, but I lost my train of thought. But anyway, um, I'd be wary of this time with different arguments. And if it's different, it might not be so different that you get Trump or Bernie Sanders nominated. Different might mean that it takes a long time before Rubio wins and gets a little ugly. Different might maybe mean that Ted Cruz or someone might have a shot, or that Carly Fiorina, who, although she's considered an outsider because she hasn't held office before, ran for California Senate as an establishment-backed Republican in 2010, was a campaign surrogate for McCain and for Romney, and so, you know, kind of as a stealth establishment candidate, maybe she could do it. Trump is, is a long way to go. That's exactly right. You know, if you want somebody who's different, why choose Donald Trump? There's just no reason. If you want an outsider candidate, you have other choices, people who are much more likable than Trump, Carly Fiorina, Ben Carson, whose net favorability is very, very high. That is, he's very popular. See, I'm putting it in in more uh, straightforward terms. You have somebody like Ted Cruz who sort of jumps the two. Trump is just somebody who is a show. It's a show. People are interested in a show. Politics is reality TV. But when it gets down to actual voting, we've seen over and over again shows tend to decline and they tend to go nowhere. Remember, Anthony Weiner was a show in New York City. He was leading in the polls through July, just two months before the actual Democratic nomination, and then he got 5% of the vote. Shows do well early, but then actual politicians tend to do well late. And Trump is, like, very skilled. Yes, so he's a very smart man. He's fooled a lot of people so far. (laughs) <laughs> but he's very skilled, I mean, kind of taking advantage of, I mean, the two grand theories about Trump are that Trump exploits problems with the media or he exploits problems with the Republican Party, or both, and I kind of think it's probably some of both, where they've been told for years you want an outsider with executive experience. Well, Donald Trump has both those things, sure. right? That it makes it tricky. But I do get that, that you get that sense almost that, uh, that the 30% of people who say they prefer Donald Trump, it's almost like, well, we think the Donald Trump show is more interesting than the actual primary right now. You know, there's some evidence that some of those voters aren't people who, you know, truck out to their caucus in Iowa in the dead of winter to vote, um, and that they're kind of new voters, whether they'll actually turn out or not, or would turn out for Trump, is a little bit less clear, but it's almost a different trajectory that that those voters are on, I think. Yeah. Civis Analytics, which is a Democratic firm, they actually called registered Republican voters, and they found that Trump's support, at least nationally, was significantly less than most of the public polls found. A lot of these public polls are just calling up people randomly. There's no way to really verify whether or not they're voters. And, I mean, at this point, I kind of feel like picking up a poll saying I'm a voter and saying I'm going to support Donald Trump for president just so I can see the news coverage the next day and have myself a good laugh. And when you have polls of super-engaged voters, so although you can definitely go too far and looking at, like, straw polls and votes at conferences and stuff like that. You know, in the Values Voter Summit, Mm -hmm. uh, he finished with, what was it, 6% of the vote? I thought it was 5, but... Nevada, an important early state. They had a state fair, whatever it was in Nevada, where you have a lot of people to caucus state. So kind of leaders of people who will gather support the caucuses. Trump finished with, like, five votes out of 120 or something. Jeb Bush won that, or at least won a Washington. And Jeb Bush is a more organized candidate, won that campaign. So it's not clear, kind of literally who the pollsters are getting on the phone, you know, you read a list of 15 candidates and people say, okay, you know, sure, Donald Trump, why not? It's different than when voters are actually 
at the brink of making a, a decision. So if not Trump, then who? We're Rubio bulls. Like, we need to disagree on more. What do we disagree on, Harry? This is uh, we were bullish on Scott we, we, Walker. We, we were bullish on Scott Walker. That was wrong. What about Jeb? Jeb Bush was supposed to be a front runner. Yeah. Yeah. Jeb. Jeb Jeb's an interesting guy. Um, Bush is kind of a capital E establishment candidate. So if you say, you know what, I know the establishment usually wins in the end, and those candidates have lots of money, lots of support, and things will swim back in that direction. They still have to swing back pretty far in that direction for it to get to Bush, I think. Bush also got a lot of money early on, a fair number of endorsements early on, and that slowed down a little bit, it looks like. People are kind of waiting their time. Walker obviously is out of the race, but that's kind of consistent with the theory of the establishment making up its mind and saying, you know what, Scott Walker, we have a problem because we have so many choices. It's time for you to leave the stage. It's that same process that will eventually, in theory, help someone like a Bush or a Rubio win the nomination. So it's a sign that in some ways the party still does have influence over the race. But, you know, lately it seems like people are kicking the tires on Rubio a bit more. There's been some unsourced reporting that donors are saying, Bush, you got a month, and if you don't show some signs of life, in a month, that's when we're going to consider Rubio and Kasich and who knows who else. But I've become like a little bit bearish on Bush, although he's still a plausible nominee. If you kind of follow the textbook, you know, Bush is the Romney-like, McCain-like candidate, and for better or worse, those candidates have won the past couple of nominations. Harry, what about Chris Christie? Well, wait a minute. I want to, I'll answer both in this. In this. He's taking... I have no control over any of No, you have no control over me. You should see his edits of my pieces. I run right through them with the red line and say, no, thank you. <laughs> Jeb Bush is spending a lot of money on the air right now, both he and his super PAC in Iowa and New Hampshire. Let's see where the polls are in a month or two. And if they haven't moved at all, to me, that signals that Jeb Bush is in a lot of trouble because it means that the money for him simply doesn't matter. He's a very well-known name, or at least the name is very well-known. He's a fairly moderate guy. If you look at both who's supporting him in endorsements and in terms of voter support, it tends to be the more moderate liberal part of the party. And if you know anything about politics, you know that that part of the Republican Party is shrinking currently. As for Chris Christie, interesting guy, you know, fellow Northeasterner. I like Northeast people, but... Chris Christie's not very popular among most Republican voters. He hasn't really picked up that many endorsements. But Chris Christie is a personality. He is somebody who can get up on that debate stage and make noise and come across very well. So he is somebody that I think Nate would agree with me on here, someone who has real surge potential, somebody who could, as this campaign goes along and we have these debates, could jump up 15 20% of the vote. But then when it comes down to the actual voting, to me, Christie's record is simply too moderate, and plus he has too many skeletons in his closet. Skeletons that maybe not even in his closet as much as out in the open right now that are going to be brought up over and over and over again. So I, I'm very bearish on Christie, but at this point, you know, if you're, if, I think the betting markets had him at like 1% or 2% at some point. I, I'd buy that. I'd buy a little stock in that, but if you put it up to 10 I'd sell. Ironically, though, he kind of has some of the same problems as Trump. Chris Christie was one of the most popular politicians in America for a period of time. People thought he was brash, brash and outspoken and told the truth. And now, a couple years later, he's seen as kind of a, a loose cannon, right, who's just out for himself. And I think Trump, who's not very popular with independents right now, but, you know, does okay with Republicans, you might have the same thing happen, where, you know what, this guy, it's not that he's amazingly outspoken and telling the truth. He's just kind of saying what's on the top of his mind, and he's kind of a moron 
half the time. I would say that Christie almost has, in my opinion, a Clinton problem, but to a much greater degree. That is, Clinton's primary numbers began to fall off the moment her general election numbers began to fall off. That is, she was no longer seen as the most electable, so Democratic voters were open to an alternative. The same thing happened with Christie. That is, his numbers in the primary were pretty high, then Bridgegate hit, his general numbers plummeted, and then his primary numbers just went through the ground. So I think what that indicates is that voters are still interested in electable candidates. So it's going to be interesting to see, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that we're so high on Rubio, is that we think he is, could be seen as the more electable candidate. He's a Hispanic, although he is not Mexican. He's a Cuban-Hispanic. He is somebody who won in a swing state. He's somebody whose numbers are still pretty good with swing voters. So that's why I think we're high on Rubio, but that's going to be something to watch as who has the best general election numbers going into those primaries? Because if somebody stands out far above the field, Republicans want to beat Hillary Clinton. There's nothing more important to them. They can't stand her. One more question about the primary so far. What has the media gotten the most wrong so far? I mean, we spend a lot of time at 538 kind of throwing stones at the media, but what is kind of the biggest mistake in the capital N narrative so far? I think just the notion of spending so much time looking at polls, it's really weird. I mean, I've never seen interest in polls occur so early before. In July, people are like really excited there's going to be a 5 p.m. release of a poll today, and the polls don't really mean anything much at all at this point in the race. So I think that's kind of the fundamental premise is that the polls are used to justify a lot of coverage of candidates. It becomes self-perpetuating and self-fulfilling. The media is not aware of its own role in the process where Trump literally, I don't know if this is true any longer, but literally got more coverage for a period of a couple of months than every other GOP candidate combined. If you took Jeb Bush or Carly Fiorina or Ben Carson or Ted Cruz and gave them literally 6% of the media coverage, I would think they'd be doing better than Trump in the polls, frankly. I think for Trump to get 6% of the media coverage and only 25% in the polls is pretty terrible. But anyway, um, I think the media is not very aware of its own role in the process. It's not very aware of how unreliable polls are, and it's not very aware of how little attention voters at home are paying at this stage of the campaign. If you're in the press, we suffer from this too. It's our job to cover the campaign every single day and to look for stories. Even the story is, hey, calm down. We still you know, refresh kind of our, our view of the race every single day. That's not what people at home are doing. They're worried about about football, they're worried about the kids back in school, they're worried about you know, their small business and whatever else, and they'll start tuning in gradually over the period of a few months here. That's a good answer. I'd say money. I think people overestimate how important money is. Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders haven't spent a dime on television yet, and yet their numbers have continuously gone up. And I would expand that to say super PAC money in particular. Scott Walker raised a ton of it, Jeb Bush has raised a ton of it, but you can't coordinate, well, you're not supposed to coordinate between super PACs and the actual campaigns. Hard money still rules in politics, and I don't believe that story has been brought out enough. So let's talk real quick about the general election, then we'll go to questions. But Clinton looks like the favorite on the Democratic side. Trump is the clear favorite on the Republican side. Who God wins? help us. No. Is it too early, or can we say anything about the, the general election in November 2016? I mean, we can say it looks like an election that might be pretty close, assuming you don't have Trump or someone as a nominee. That's not um, a very sexy answer. 
It's not, but it's a responsible <laughs> answer, right? If you look at elections where you didn't have an incumbent president running, a lot of them look like 2000, which was the closest election ever, of course. Obama's legacy will still cast a shadow on this race. The thing is, Obama's legacy right now is, is very mixed. His approval ratings are about break-even. The economy is doing better, but not people doing cartwheels by any means. In foreign policy, he has some accomplishments, but there are a lot of problems in the world still. All those things would point to an election that's pretty, pretty close, historically. Everything, to my mind at this point, doesn't really lean in one way or another. It's a close election. Campaigns matter. Campaigns happen for a reason. Have some patience. I know that's difficult for me. You know, I'm one of those people at 5 p.m. who's trying to find out the URL that's going to actually be the particular poll so I can cheat and You're get it at 4 p.m. I'm basically. trying to hack the polls. So that's difficult um, for me to do. But patience, 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 patience. I do want to ask if anybody in the audience has questions. It does not have to be about the election. You can ask about anything you want. So we got Mike here yet. I don't know if you have any data on this at all, but to what extent is it an advantage to be good looking? Because Barack Obama... It's really helpful to me. (laughs) I wouldn't be here without it. And Rubio is... Yeah, handsome guy. Very handsome guy. Is there there a way to quantify that in terms of being important? I I mean, the the real answer to the question is probably no. I, I would say that there are a few studies that do indicate that being sort of more grown up looking, I think, help, you know, not looking like a kid. So I remember distinctly Ralph Reed, who is a big Christian conservative, was running for the lieutenant gubernatorial nomination in Georgia in 2006. He looks, his face is very smooth. He looks, he almost looks like someone that I could see out modeling on the street or something like that. And that actually, I believe, hurt him. Um, so I would say someone who looks more distinguished, that, that's, but th- these are studies that are not exactly the greatest in the world. Looking out to 2016, how do you see voter turnout comparing to prior cycles? And obviously that's dependent a lot on who's running, but what kind of voter turnout do you see and the implications for that for the election? I think the biggest question is going to be whether African Americans continue to turn out at the high levels that they did for Barack Obama. Um, There was some signs that they turned out higher in 2004 before Obama ran, but remember, Barack Obama could have won that campaign without a single Hispanic vote. He couldn't have won that campaign without African Americans. They make up a very large percentage of the vote in Ohio, Virginia, Florida. That, to me, is going to be key, whether or not Hillary Clinton, who I believe will be the Democratic nominee, can get that African-American turnout, and whether or not she can maintain that 90-point margin that Obama did among them. If she can, she's in a very strong position. If she can't, and you see somewhat of a George W. Bush sort of effort into the African-American community where he was able to win, get into the double digits, that could be very, very bad news for Clinton. I mean, we have seen record levels of, of enthusiasm at this point, in the campaign, and I'm not trying to contradict myself, right? You can kind of draw a map of how many people are paying close attention to the campaign right now. It's only 30% right now. It's important to keep in mind. Usually, though, it's 18%, so it's on a higher track. If that translates to higher turnout, I'm not sure. If you wind up with a Clinton versus Bush election with no third-party candidate, that could be kind of dreadful. I don't know, even though we think it's one of the more likely outcomes, right, that might not, like, inspire a lot of enthusiasm, necessarily. Um, Maybe inspire enthusiasm for hatred. If it's Bernie versus Ted Cruz with Michael Bloomberg and Colin Powell and Donald Trump running uh, as independents, then that would be a high turnout election, I would think. We're running out of time here. Um, Let's try to squeeze one more question in, though. I think this guy had one. 
So with uh, John Boehner um, retiring, and there have been a lot of coverage showing how when John Boehner came in in 1990, he was more conservative, and now the House has moved around him. Do you see that reflected in the general Republican Party, and does that affect the primary results, especially when you consider historical data? Harry? Yes, is the uh, short answer. The general social survey out of the University of Chicago has been asking people's ideologies and breaking it down by party, and we actually do see that Republicans have ticked more conservative over time and that they're at their most conservative point since the study began, I think, 1972. And what we note also is that most of the Republican candidates this time around are actually more moderate than the voters place themselves. So it's going to be interesting as we use these historical, you know, analogies of who won and who lost, whether that model breaks down because voters at this point simply are more conservative than they were in the past. But I think that's a reason why to look at Jeb Bush's bid with some skepticism is because he looks much more like a Republican who would be elected in 2000 than someone who would be nominated in 2016 and why Rubio has a pretty good shot and why Ted Cruz, who might otherwise not have a good shot, in my opinion, at least doesn't have a 0% chance of winning the nomination. Yeah, and look, you can make a case that's kind of an open and shut election for Rubio. Like I said, I think I'm much too cautious to make that case. Sure. But the case would simply be, you look historically, number one, you don't get a candidate nominated with the opposition of the establishment. And number two, you get a candidate nominated who's about in line with where Republican voters are, right? It's a very conservative party. Marco Rubio is a very conservative guy. Um, he might not be crazy conservative, but sure. you look at his issue positions, they're quite conservative. He has exceptional approval. There's no other candidate in the field with Walker out that has those two things. If you use the template of past nominations, then, then Rubio would be your guy. All right, so I think we have to wrap up. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Check out the website. Nate Silver, Harry Enten, and Micah Cohen, thanks again to Advertising Week for sponsoring the panel and giving us the audio, and thanks to Joe Sykes for editing that conversation. Remember, subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client so you don't miss any new episodes. And find all of our podcasts at 538.com slash podcasts. And, of course, all our election coverage on the site as well. See you soon.